Good afternoon, Westminster Seminary, California. Hi, this is Paul from Indianapolis, Indiana. And my question is, what has been the allure of the Eastern Orthodox Church to many of the recent converts from Protestantism? Thanks. This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In the 1990s, after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, American evangelicals began to come into direct contact with forms of Christianity not well known to many of us before then. Since that time, a million evangelicals have found in Eastern Orthodoxy things they've missed in their evangelical experience. To put that number in perspective, that's nearly twice the size of all the people in the confessional Reformed and Presbyterian churches in North America. One of the attractions of Eastern Orthodoxy is its claim to antiquity and continuity with the Apostolic Church. These claims are reflected in a recent episode of the CBS News program, 60 Minutes. Father Yakovos is one of the few Americans on the mountain. He's been here more than half his life. You have to understand the words that we're saying in today's liturgy are the same words that Christ was saying the same words that saints from the first century, the second century, the third century, the fourth century. And nothing has changed in orthodoxy since then. It's the only branch of Christianity that can make that claim. Mike Horton, J. Gresham Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California, joins us for Office Hours today to talk about the attraction of Eastern Orthodoxy, how we should think about it, and respond to it. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. We're here to talk about the resurgence of interest in Eastern Orthodoxy, particularly among evangelical, Protestant, and uh, Reformed folk. So let's do the basics. When I say Eastern Orthodoxy, I'm using it in a collective sense to encompass a variety of movements, so I know this is a somewhat difficult question, but what is Eastern Orthodoxy? Eastern Orthodoxy is, first of all, not Roman Catholicism. And if you ask an Eastern Orthodox person what Orthodoxy is, he or she will tell you that it's really the unbroken tradition of the Church that goes back to the Apostles themselves. The bishops are the successors to the Apostles. There is no supreme bishop like the Pope. There's a patriarch of Constantinople who is first in preeminence, but the bishops are equal. They call this the idea of the autocephalous view of church government, that is the self-heading, self-headship of churches. So a true church is a church under one of these orthodox bishops in unbroken continuity from the apostles. And that is defined by the Orthodox faith, which is summarized in the first five councils of the ancient church. Most of those councils we also share as Reformed Christians, but they also agree with canons in those councils that we disagree on. For instance, councils that overturned the earlier prohibition of images. But they embrace those early councils, and they do believe that a bishop can be deposed even by the laity if he's unfaithful to the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. The central doctrine, really, of Eastern Orthodoxy is the idea of deification. 
Peter talks about us as the children of God sharing in God's nature. And that has sort of become the central text for Eastern Orthodox views of salvation. The idea here is that just as God became man and wedded a human nature to his divine nature in the perfect unity of one person, so too God in Christ has united us, humanity, to himself and through the sacraments of the church, particularly baptism, a person becomes a god. Now, we in the West understand that typically to mean becoming essentially divine, and they don't believe that. That would be blasphemy. But we become deified by God's energies. We never become divine in God's essence, never confusing God's essence with our essence. But by God's energies, we cooperate with his grace and we become as divine as it is possible for human beings to become. And so we have a place for that in Reformed theology in the doctrine of glorification. But whereas Roman Catholicism collapses justification into sanctification, Eastern Orthodoxy tends to collapse justification into glorification. And to see that glorification as a process that begins even now and culminates in our glorification with the resurrection from the dead. So the emphasis really is on our cooperating with God's grace, just as the humanity of Christ cooperated with his deity so that we can eventually be united with God. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You gave us a ton of stuff to (laughs) unpack, but that's good. That's what we needed you to do, to sort of lay out the field for us so we can go back and look at each of these questions individually. Apologists, as you already suggested, for the Eastern Orthodox traditions like to say that they represent the unbroken succession of apostolic Christianity. And from a historical point of view, we have to evaluate that question and ask, is that really true? And then I've got some follow-ups after that. Sure. I think, first of all, when you do that empirical analysis, it isn't accurate. I think you have to at least qualify that significantly if you're Eastern Orthodox, because the councils themselves sometimes contradicted each other. For example, I mentioned the controversy over icons and images. The Eastern Church forbids images, unlike the Western Catholic Church, but they affirm icons, the use of icons. Well, at the Council of Ephesus earlier, the use of any images or icons was strictly forbidden. It was prohibited. But a later council overturned that. You have also councils where one patriarch was consecrated and that same patriarch was deposed. So you don't really have a completely smooth transition from the apostles to the present. What you find, actually, is what you find in the New Testament. You know, I'm always intrigued when people say, I want to go back to the era of the apostles. Really? (laughs) Are we reading the same book of Acts? Right. And the divisions that you have in Galatia, the vehemence with which Paul protested to the very face of Peter, calling him a hypocrite. I mean, there were real debates, real divisions. Paul lamented that the Corinthians were dividing between himself, Peter, and Apollos. And so divisions, schisms, doctrinal debates, even heresies within the church were there even with the apostles. The apostles had to put those fires out. If that's true in the era of the apostles, we shouldn't have much hubris about the pristine character of bishops following the era of the apostles. The church has always been a fallible interpreter of an infallible scripture. 
If I could throw one more thing in, one of the reasons this happened, Scott, as you know, is Irenaeus in the second century, the Bishop of Lyon, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who himself was a disciple of the Apostle John, Irenaeus was really magnificently prepared to go up against the Gnostics, the ancient Gnostic heresy, which really spread throughout the Christian world. And this is in the second century. Irenaeus made an argument. It wasn't his whole argument, but it was an important argument to the Gnostics. Look, you have your own Bible, your Gnostic scriptures. You have your own sacraments that you've invented that don't involve matter like water and bread and wine, because the Gnostics didn't believe in matter. And you have your own Gnostic pastors and hierarchy. Well, let's just start with the third one. We can trace our lineage to the apostles. And Irenaeus actually could. It was a pretty good argument for Irenaeus to make. He could trace his lineage to Polycarp. Because you're only going from 150 back to, let's say, mid-60s. So you're only going back 90 years. Yeah. It's sort of like saying, hey, if you want to find out what really happened at the meeting last Thursday, ask someone who was there. And if you can't find someone who was there, at least find someone who knew someone who was there. And the Gnostics were out there making all this new stuff up. And Irenaeus quite properly said, look, talk to the people who were consecrated as pastors by the pastors who were themselves ordained by the apostles. That evolved into a theory of apostolic succession, and eventually, in the West at least, turned into a theory of one bishop, one pastor of a particular jurisdiction, becoming the supreme pontiff of all of the other pastors. And that's one of the reasons why the East broke from the West. And as a historical matter, it's one thing to go back 90 years. I knew my grandfather who died in 1974 or 75, and he was born in 1901. And I knew my great-grandfather who was born in the 19th century. So in my memory, I can connect back pretty easily to the late 19th century. But after that, it gets a little more complicated. And then if you transpose that into the ancient world and all of the social disruptions that happened in the wake of the collapse of the Roman Empire and the turmoil in the Eastern Empire and so forth, it gets rather more complicated to say that this bishop was succeeded or ordained by this bishop who ordained that bishop. And at some point, that line of ostensible line of succession becomes a little more difficult to trace. Especially, Scott, when you have links in that chain who were actually deposed for heresy or for sexual misconduct or for political reasons, were deposed, and that link in the chain, therefore, was missing. And so, yeah, you're right. It becomes very complicated to assert universally that there's an unbroken succession. So then the question comes, well, what kind of succession do we look for? And this raises a whole series of questions. Why do evangelicals find this, and some Reformed folks, find this idea of succession so compelling, so powerful, so persuasive that it causes them to get up, as it were, leave their current congregation and convert to one of the Eastern traditions and embrace really an entirely different culture in many respects. A number of friends who've gone over to Orthodoxy have kind of told a similar story. They're looking for the pristine original church. And I don't know if it's fair to say this, but I think that a lot of folks who do that, 
have been raised in evangelical traditions that are tainted by the history of what is known as restorationism. The restorationist idea is that the church was pristine, you know, this golden age view of history. There was this golden age, and then somehow the church lost its way, it became corrupt, and now we have found our way back to Atlantis, and we have found the original pristine church. And so a lot of these folks that I have in mind were raised in the Jesus movement. They were going back to Acts and saying, let's live like everybody in Acts. The book of Acts is a blueprint for our churches today. That didn't quite work out so well. There were a lot of abuses of discipline and the shepherding movement and the charismatic movement. and Things got complicated Things got quickly. very complicated. And so now they say, oh, there's, there's a church that is there originally in unbroken succession from the book of Acts. So I think that's one appeal. History's messy, and evangelicals don't like messiness. There's a kind of fundamentalism that says, I want to go to the pristine, unbroken truth that has been held for all of the ages, that has absolutely no taint of historical corruption. I want to go back to that purity and be absolutely certain that whatever that church tells me is true. Which is not actually a very Protestant or evangelical way of thinking about authority, is it? No, it isn't, because, you know, really, the way the New Testament talks about authority and talks about succession is the succession of apostolic ministry. Yeah, there's a succession. It's a succession of the gospel. Paul told Timothy, don't mess around with the content that I'm passing on to you. I'm giving to you what I received. What you receive, pass on to faithful men who will be able to teach it to others. Well, that's a succession, but what he's saying is there's a succession of ministry, and that means a succession of the gospel, the succession of doctrine, a succession of the ministry of word and sacrament, and a succession of the offices of pastor, elder, and deacon. All of that we have today. There is an unbroken succession leading back to the apostles, but it's not an unbroken succession of men. It's an unbroken succession of ministry. When we come back, I've got a question for you, because I think there might be another connection between the Eastern Orthodox traditions, as you've described them for us, and evangelicalism as it has existed in North America for the last couple hundred years. And I think that connection is eschatology. And when we come back, I want you to explain that for us. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. American evangelicalism is known for its interest in passion about the return of Christ. Since the 19th century, at least, and even before, there have been moments where there has been intense speculation about the return of Jesus, and that existed before. And, of course, it's happened many times since, most recently with the 
Harold Camping episode. What do you think of the thesis, Mike, that there is a connection? As you describe the Eastern Orthodox approach to salvation as theosis, whereby we become divine in some sense, and it really is something like our doctrine of glorification, which is, in a sense, brought back into history. Doesn't that connect, in a way, with what our evangelical friends have been looking for in their own terms for a long time? Could that be a point of connection? Well, first of all, I think that there is a tendency to replace justification with either sanctification or glorification. We believe, of course, that we will be glorified when Christ returns, the dead are raised. At the resurrection of the justified, there will be a public transformation of the bodies, not just the souls, but of the bodies of believers. They will be glorified, and as our own Reformed theologians say, will be deified as far as it is possible for a human being to be. So that's not a hurdle for us to talk like that. In fact, Calvin and the other Reformers were able to go back to the early Eastern Fathers and draw a lot of this stuff out. One place you see what we would call an over-realized eschatology in Eastern Orthodox thinking is in its view of the Lord's Supper. In many ways, the Eastern Orthodox view of the Lord's Supper bears similarities to the Reformed view. It's no news that Calvin and Vermilly and other Reformed leaders went back and read the early fathers of the East, especially the Cappadocian fathers, Athanasius. Uh, Calvin uh, likes to quote Cyril of Alexandria, even, as well as Irenaeus. So these are early Eastern Church fathers, and Reformed theologians read them very deeply and were profoundly influenced by them. But here's a key difference. Most Eastern Orthodox theologies of the Eucharist will say that at every celebration of the Eucharist, there is a fully—their words, I'm quoting John Zazulis here—a fully realized eschatology. So in other words, Jesus Christ returns again to the earth— as he promised he would one day, at the Eucharist. Well, that is a crucial difference with the Reformed understanding, and I would argue the the explicit teaching of the New Testament, which distinguishes between the already and the not yet. There is a paradox here, and the Zwinglians, those who say that the Lord's Supper is just a bare memorial, remembering what happened in the past, have an under-realized eschatology. They don't really see our participation in the Lord's Supper as a sharing in the consummation that will dawn perfectly and fully when Christ returns. But in the Eastern Orthodox view, as also in the Roman Catholic view, Jesus actually returns in the way that he said he would at the end of the age. He returns bodily to the earth in the Eucharist. And this is where Calvin also disagreed with Luther. The Reformed view is that Christ cannot return until he returns bodily in a way that will be public and known to all. You won't have to do philosophical mechanics about how Christ is present. He will be visibly, physically present, and everybody will know it. So what is the Lord's Supper then? He isn't absent, but he also isn't present in the same fullness that will be apparent on the last day. So how is he present? Well, he's present by his Spirit, his Holy Spirit, lifts us up where we are seated with Christ already in heavenly places. And in a mysterious way, again, with this tension of the already and the not yet, we feed on Christ's body and blood in heaven 
And he is not just his spirit, but his whole person, body and soul, humanity and divinity, his whole person is the substance of our salvation, our true food and our true drink for everlasting life. But we live in that tension now between the Lord's Supper as a meal that anticipates the wedding supper of the Lamb and the wedding supper itself. It's not just a trial run. It's not just a symbol that anticipates that day. It actually participates in the consummation, but it isn't the consummation yet. I think if I understand your question right, a lot of evangelicals have an over-realized eschatology when it comes to the kingdom of God and an under-realized eschatology when it comes to, for instance, the sacraments. So in in an under-realized eschatology, you say, well, you know, the world is just a sinking ship, as D.L. Moody said, God has given me a life raft and said, Moody, save as many as you can. So you don't really care much about this world It isn't participating in any future grace, anything eternal. It's just all going to be destroyed, and so forget about it. The Lord's Supper, well, it doesn't really participate in the consummation. It's just sort of something Jesus told us to do. On the other hand, you have an over-realized eschatology. This is typically identified with post-millennialism. If an under-realized eschatology is identified with premillennialism, post-millennialism is over-realized. Look, the kingdom of Christ in its consummated form, namely as a geopolitical social entity in the world transforming the nations and the cultures, is already here. We just have to get busy and realize that so that Jesus can come back. I think evangelicals in the last 200 years have swung that pendulum back and forth, depending on the daily news, from a kind of pessimistic premillennialism to an optimistic postmillennialism. Once again, the New Testament puts us in a very precarious spot. It would be easy to be pessimistic and not worry about optimism. It would be easy to be an optimist and just ignore anything that would lead you to doubt. But the difficult spot, the precarious place that the Word of God places us in is the already and not yet, the tension between the fact that we're already saved, but we're not yet saved. Christ is present, but there's a very real sense in which Christ isn't fully present. The kingdom is here, but not here in its fully consummated form. And that's why we say that we have all these benefits from Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because we don't fully possess them in their reality now, even though we have them, in fact, in principle now. So we live between two times. Yeah, and that's why I think Wesleyanism, for example, Wesley was very fond of the Eastern view of deification. I think there are lots of parallels there with his doctrine of Christian perfection, overrealized eschatology. A lot of evangelicals, I did, a lot of us grew up with the teaching of the victorious Christian life, overrealized eschatology. You can live above all known sins in this life. So it sort of forms, that overrealized eschatology forms a kind of subconscious on-ramp yeah. to Eastern Orthodoxy. And I want to go from there then to the Reformation. So we live in a Reformational context where we talk about sola gratia, sola fide. And for us, justification is very important, this idea that we are declared right with God on the basis of what Christ has done for us and all that is imputed to us and that we receive by resting, receiving, trusting, and so forth alone. In Eastern Orthodoxy, that's not a way they talk or think. They think we're a little hung up on all that. We would say, well, 
Paul seems to talk about that, and other parts in the New Testament seem to be pretty interested in that. But they say, well, no, it's really more about being. Can you contrast a little bit the different ways of thinking about the problem of righteousness with God? In a book conversation with Eastern Orthodoxy, I posed a series of passages that I thought Eastern Orthodoxy didn't take account of, and my Eastern Orthodox interlocutor admitted it. He says, these are passages that, frankly, our tradition has never really expounded. Oh, well, wouldn't that be important since there are so many of them and they seem so central to the Apostles' argument? I'm certainly not saying that it doesn't have biblical elements. We can learn a lot from Eastern Orthodoxy, especially the early pre-Byzantine theologians of the East, a lot. Don't underestimate how dependent you are on your understanding of the Trinity. On the Cappadocians. Exactly. And what we take for granted in the view of the two natures in one person that we inherited from the great labors of the Eastern Church Fathers. However, that tradition, the Eastern Church tradition, in its asceticism, in its view of theosis, the way it talks often about theosis, the Eastern Orthodox tradition would never have emerged in a culture that wasn't heir to Plato. It is, from top to bottom, an attempt to, let's see, put it in the best terms, to reconstruct Christianity in Platonic language, in the language of Plato. In the worst-case scenario, with some writers— it actually is Plato more than Paul. And so we really have to, I think, recognize the tremendous debt to Scripture, yes, but also to Plato and the Greek philosophical heritage. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So the idea that the Eastern traditions represent this pristine, unbroken succession of apostolic Christianity— Untainted by culture and custom— —is really quite— contrary to fact and unhistorical because to become a serious adherent to one of the Eastern traditions, you have to embrace more than doctrines. You have to embrace a culture and oftentimes even a set of philosophical ideas that are very, very important. And that's not a Western criticism. That's the way the Eastern apologists represent themselves. They're not ashamed of their debt to Plato. Right. In fact, very often they will quote Plato or they will state something that you find in Plato's writings as their own. So it's not as if they would be offended by that remark. Any more than Thomas Aquinas would be offended by our pointing out that he and many other medieval Western theologians cite Aristotle as the philosopher. And this is why we are Reformed Christians. We want to be able to criticize over-dependence on Plato or over-dependence on Aristotle. And while we don't want to be ignorant of these things and we want to judge them properly, we want to do so in the light of Scripture. Yeah, our theologians have also been influenced by Plato and Aristotle. You know, our tradition has been influenced by these writers. Our theologians knew them well. The question is whether they have a magisterial role. A ruling role. A ruling role, or a ministerial role, a serving role. Two final questions. One, someone comes to your office and says, Pastor, I met someone, we had some conversations, and I've been doing some reading, and I'm really attracted to the Eastern Orthodox traditions. And I'm thinking, you know, that's what I've always been looking for. Pastor, what do you say? First of all, I'd want to pastorally ask them questions. I would want to understand where they're coming from and not just sort of 
shout answers at them immediately. And that's important, right? Because the instinct sometimes is to jump on people and say, you can't do that. That's crazy. And here's why you're doing this. I know why you're doing this. No, we got to let them tell us, you know, what they're struggling with. I would, first of all, assume because of the conversations I have had with many people, including Reformed people who have made that jump, that the doctrine of justification is at the very least no longer an article by which the church stands or falls. It's been pushed into the background. Now they are more enamored of the church. Well, we introduced them to the church. They came from evangelical or Pentecostal backgrounds. They discovered that Jesus founded a church and that it didn't start with Billy Graham or the Azusa Street Revival. They start digging into the 2,000 years of church history that Reformed theology grows out of, and they say, well, why go back to the 16th century, as if we do? Let's go back to the first five centuries of the church. That's an appealing kind, I think naive, but kind of appealing thing for a lot of folks. The doctrine of the church just swallows whole the doctrine of salvation, If you're willing to surrender the gospel of justification for your personal cooperation with grace leading to final glorification, that's a pretty big thing to swallow. I also assume, frankly, that their introduction to covenant theology has led them out of American evangelical individualism, and they have come to believe that the promise is for them and for their children— as well as for those who are far off. And so they have a more covenantal view. And now they not only want to have their children baptized, but they they don't understand why on earth you would withhold the Lord's Supper from those children. If you're really going to think covenantally, oh, here's a tradition that not only baptizes children, but communes them. They're really covenantal. So all of the reasons I embraced Reformed theology, minus justification and election and, (laughs) you know, salvation of the Lord. And maybe church government. Church government, exactly. All of those things that sort of attracted them out of evangelicalism into Reformed Christianity now attract them out of it into Eastern Orthodoxy. And at this point, I think what I would do as a pastor is say, okay, let's just put all of the issues to the periphery that we could talk about. We could talk about all sorts of things. We could talk about icons. We could talk about sola scriptura, which, by the way, is more of an open question in Orthodoxy than it is in Rome. All sorts of things we could talk about. But none of that is worth our time unless— we have settled this question of how are you right before a holy God? That's not an individualistic question. That is a question that's raised in the New Testament itself when people said, what should we, how then can we be saved? What's your answer to that? The answer of the New Testament is believe in your heart that Christ is the Holy One sent from God. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. The Eastern Orthodox answer is come in and begin a process of becoming saved. As your free will cooperates with God's grace, you will merit, you will—they don't like the word merit so much—you will— Warrant? Warrant God's acceptance of you because you really are becoming holy. You really are cooperating with grace. And you can cooperate because, as I read the Eastern traditions, they seem to me to downplay to some degree what we call original sin. The effect of the fall isn't quite as devastating in their view as it is in our understanding of Scripture. That's what they'll say out of the gate, and this is very important. They say, look, we never had to have a reformation. We didn't fight over these things. You guys had an internecine squabble because you forgot that the real problem is death and mortality, and the real solution of Christ in, in the incarnation, cross, and resurrection is immortality. 
the bestowal of the gift of immortality, undying glorification. And you guys talk about the problem being original sin, this original guilt that is inherited and imputed to Adam's posterity, and Christ's cross is primarily the payment of a penalty. So you guys are thinking in legal categories, and then you just disagree over justification, whether that's imputed like original sin is. We avoided the Reformation because we don't think like that. You guys actually are closer together than either one of you is to us. A lot of evangelicals, and let's even say Reformed folk, who go over to either Orthodoxy or Rome when they're taking their choice can say, look, I don't like the Pope. I can still hold on to some kind of priority of Scripture over tradition. I don't have to have everything nailed down on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. I don't have to embrace transubstantiation. And I can avoid the whole apparatus of original sin, justification, all of those debates that I don't like very much. I can just cut to the chase, go around that intersection where an accident occurred, and get back to the ancient church. That is very alluring to people. It's powerful. It's powerful, but the question remains, when you stand before a holy God and he asks for an accounting of your life, are you going to point to Christ or are you going to point to your cooperation with grace? Or even Christ and the Spirit working in you right? and your cooperation. Paul, to the best of my knowledge, was not a Latin Christian. He may have known Latin, I don't know, but he's not a Western Christian. He's a Jew converted in a Palestinian setting, fluent in Greek, so he's connections to the Greek-speaking, what we might think of as the Eastern world. And so from that context says... In Romans 4, 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. And the one who does not work, but trusts him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It seems to me Paul has some legal concerns, has concerns about standing before God. So when you ask the question, you know, how do you plan to stand before God? You're not imposing a Western, Latin, anachronistic question on the faith. You're asking the question that Paul asks. Romans 7 comes to mind. Paul surely is concerned about how he's going to be delivered, which is salvation, from corruption, sin, and death. And there the the Eastern Orthodox would come back and say, well, yeah, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, that's the problem for Paul. It's the body. It's the flesh. That's right. We've got to be released from this body of death. But Paul actually says there, and in 1 Corinthians 15, and in Romans 3, that actually we die because of the guilt The penalty, it's the punishment, the penalty for sin. So the Eastern Orthodox are right to talk about death and corruption as a symptom of sin, as the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. But they don't like to talk about it as the wages, as the guilt, as the penalty incurred, because that's the Western legal way of talking. But as you point out, it's the biblical way of talking. Jesus says, whoever believes in me is not condemned. Whoever doesn't believe in me is condemned already. And that's legal language. That's legal language. And Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that creation was tov. It's good. It's not broken. It's not bad. Before the fall, it's not evil. There's nothing latent in it that's inherently corrupt. And by the way, I think I learned that from Irenaeus. I think I learned that from the early Greek-speaking fathers who taught us explicitly the intrinsic goodness of creation over against the Gnostics. Yeah, and I think it's important, again, to go back to justification and the graciousness of grace. 
to look at some of the more recent statements of Eastern Orthodoxy. For example, in the 17th century, the patriarch of Constantinople, Cyril Lucaris, actually became a Calvinist, and he made the canons of the Synod of Dort officially binding on the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, he was assassinated by the fanatical Roman Catholic, and subsequently, an Eastern Orthodox Council was called to condemn Calvinism because of Patriarch Lucaris's embrace of it. If you look at that confession of condemnations, the Eastern Orthodox Church, in reacting against Patriarch Lucaris, rejects original sin, downplays the substitutionary atonement, it outright rejects justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. It explicitly affirms that we're justified by grace and works cooperating. And this is not a scheme calculated, I would argue, to assure people of favor with God. And that's what the New Testament gives us. The Holy Scriptures give us, from Genesis to Revelation, the promise that God does all the saving in His Son, Jesus Christ, and he not only provides an opportunity for us to cooperate with that gift, he gives it a gift. It's a free gift. It's outright benefit, and we inherit it. We're co-heirs in Christ. None of this is accomplished, earned, or achieved by us. It is a pure gift of God. And I'll tell you, if the whole crux of the debate between Paul and the Judaizers was over whether salvation is a gift or whether it's something that we achieve with God's help— if that was the crux of the argument in Galatians, and Paul could say, if anyone preach another gospel, let him be anathema, then this certainly applies to the current controversy, and people would better look before they leap. Are there resources for the listener to explore these questions more fully and to become more aware of the issues, the history, the personalities, and so forth? Sure. I would recommend, first of all, a very readable book by uh, Timothy Callistus Ware, The Orthodox Church. It's a penguin paperback, really accessible. He was an Anglican bishop who converted to Eastern Orthodoxy, and now he's a bishop in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Very, very interesting person to read. Again, I find myself often drawn to these folks, interested in reading them, because there is a lot of good stuff there. We shouldn't just dismiss. But when you lose justification, it's sort of like, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? But that's a good book to start with. Then also to recommend another book, I participated in a colloquium, a book, I think it's titled Eastern Orthodoxy and Evangelicalism, or Evangelicalism and Eastern Orthodoxy, A Conversation. And there, I think people can very clearly see the differences between the two traditions. And the volume is Counterpoints, Three Views on Eastern Orthodoxy, edited by our friend Jim Stamoulis. And it's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. And there are a couple of other resources in the bookstore as well through Western Eyes, Eastern Orthodoxy, a Reformed Perspective by our friend Bob Letham. And then there's a contemporary reader edited by Daniel Clendenin, Eastern Orthodox Theology. Clendenin is a good source because he's a convert from Eastern Orthodoxy, but a very sympathetic person. He's not one of those guys who comes flying out of the tradition he was raised in, angry at it. He really values it, appreciates it, doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, nevertheless is an evangelical for good reasons. And he's a good resource to look at for understanding Eastern Orthodoxy from an evangelical perspective. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes.
Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.